Good morning, welcome to IndieLive.radio. You're listening to the daytime show. Um, my name is Valerie Gold and I'm here with Marlene Halliday. Good morning, everyone. Nice to be back. So we've got a really packed show lined up for you today. Our first guest is just getting some internet access issues sorted out, so we're looking forward to talk to him shortly. And that is Graham McCormick, who has a book coming out. He is particularly interested in annual ground rent and land reform, an issue that I know is dear to many people's hearts. And he's going to be talking to us about that. And his name is Graham McCormick. And he is also a standing for policy development convener. He's a longtime SNP member and he is standing for policy development convener of the SNP nationally uh, this weekend's uh, SNP conference, which has been held online. So we're looking forward to talking to Graham about that. Good morning, Graham. Hello, how are you? Fine, that connection sounds a lot more healthy. We're delighted to welcome you on Indie Live because, I don't know if a lot of people know this, we're, we're broadcasting remotely from home now, thanks to the fantastic Marlene, who's mastered <laughs> all the technology. But uh, when we were broadcasting in our wee studio, that was thanks to you that you gave Indie Live a home in your previous business premises, yeah, didn't you? Yeah. Well, that was, I, I was very pleased to help and I thought it was such a worthwhile thing. Uh, you know that uh, that Kevin was doing and everyone else you know connected with it so it's been uh, it was, uh, I was delighted to be able to to help there Brilliant. yes that was that was great that was where Val and I got our first taste of uh, being radio presenters Graham so <laughs> <laughs> so um, we're really pleased that you're here to talk to us today Graham and the first thing we'd like to speak to you about is your book uh, which Marlene I believe has already ordered a copy of uh-huh. and it's uh, coming out very soon it's available to purchase during the SNP conference and um, people can visit the website which is uh, annualgroundrent.scot so tell us about your book have, have you been working on it for a long time I know this is a, a subject that you're particularly passionate about? Aye, well, it was after the after this referendum in 2014. I wanted to go away and prove that uh, the idea that Scotland was subsidised by the rest of the UK was untrue and that we could actually show that to be the case. Um, and I've always been interested in land as a source of, of public funding. Uh, so I joined the Scottish Land Review Group, uh, who were, have been working on this for years, um, and and they really opened my eyes to the possibilities. But I thought that their their attitude was 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 a bit um, academic, and I didn't think it was politically um, saleable. So I went away myself to try and do a variation in that. So I came up with this thing, which I call AGFER, which is annual ground floor roof rent, uh, and it's a variation of annual ground rent. Um, and uh, I've been going around the country basically since, what, 2016, something like that, uh, doing presentations of this around SNP branches and YES groups, uh, even did one in London, um, and um, it's had a tremendous reception, really, everywhere I've, I've gone. Um, so following that, I thought, well, maybe it's the time to write a book to just sort of explain it in greater detail. And uh, so I've been working on that, really, I suppose, just in the past year, I mean, I retired December, November 2018. So I've, I've, um, I've spent the last year and a wee bit sort of getting it in place. Um, and and that's, the re- that's the reason for it. Oh. And that's it. 
I'm I'm just really looking forward to uh, to reading it, uh, Graham. I think I came across one of your articles on 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 the whole idea a while back and read it and thought, wow. And uh, knowing you were coming on the show, I did a bit more um, reading about it this this week. I must say, my first impression, and I'm, I think other people's first impression might also be that it it almost sounds like um, you've come up with an amazing. Um, magic money tree to raise <laughs> revenue for Scotland. Now, I I know that's unfair and it's not like that, but it but it does sort of sound sound um, you know something that you know a magician might brought out of his hat because there wouldn't it wouldn't be income tax. Um, that would go. We wouldn't be paying council tax, business tax. We might even have a basic citizen's income for for everyone. So could could you say okay? It's not. I'll, I'll retract that. It's not a magic money tree, but presumably it means that some things that are not being taxed at the moment would be become part of your uh, ground scheme. Could could you explain how it works a wee bit? I I mean when I when I went on this adventure, I didn't know how it would work out. Uh, I wasn't making any assumptions on it. And it was really only when I started to do the figures that I thought, gosh, this is this is incredible. And unlike a, an economist who are economists who will make forecasts and assumptions, you know, and basically say, you know, if you increase that by X percent, the Treasury, HMRC or whatever, will are anticipated to bring Y into the, the HMRC's coffers. Uh, it's not based on any assumption at all. It's all based actually on facts. Uh, and the first fact is, you know, what is the what is the extent of Scotland? What's the land mass of Scotland? And what I did was I, I then thought, right, okay, how much does you know how much does the public purse need to spend every year? What's their budget? So I looked at JERS just for the sake of JERS yeah. as a figure. Yeah. Can all argue about it, but let's just take it as as a figure. And then add a bit more, you know, because basically uh, we need more to end austerity. We need more to uh, improve our infrastructure. We need more to give a universal citizen's income. So I added all that up and the cost of that. And then I divided that into the landmass. And so I got a figure per square metre. So I then thought, well, we'll need different land types. So I went on to government web- Scottish government website and discovered there are basically four land types. And... Um, I then looked at these four land types and said, right, I'll award a rate per square metre for each type of land. And there are four basic land types. There's urban land types, there's a woodland, there's rough grazing, and there's there's basic agricultural. I then adjusted the figures to take account of that. And when I started doing that, I was absolutely amazed, you know, at, you know, relatively speaking, how cheap this was going to be. In fact, people would be paying far less, apart from 1% probably of the population, would be paying far less than than what they're paying now in all various types of taxes. And uh, the other thing that I did take into account was the fact that in, in what we call urban Scotland, which is basically everywhere that's serviced by Scottish water for their sewerage, plus all non-agricultural buildings in rural Scotland. And so the, the urban land type was increased by a factor of two to take account of that because it's different floor, different stories, etc., in buildings. And on that basis, I found it really it was it was incre- it, it just basically showed uh, the lack of stewardship of our land in Scotland. And it's not just land, rural land, but also urban land. 
And then when I looked into it a wee bit further, um, I discovered that the amount of land which is publicly held, particularly in urban situations by the Scottish government, the UK government, local authorities um, and, other, uh, and other government organisations, that they own a huge amount of land and buildings which are just not used or just not stewarded. Oh. Uh, basically, whether you're in the public sector or the private sector, you will have a liability to pay AGFA. Yeah, right. uh, and that changes that changes the whole idea of what you own because land then is not or property is not then just an asset that you can just sit and forget about. It's also a liability. Yeah. Because you're yeah. having to pay a, an, an annual ground rent or yeah. ag for on it every year. Yeah. Now that that's really the basis for it. And all that information is factual. It's not based on any assumptions at all. Yeah. Um yeah. Uh, and and that that, that's basically it's as simple as that but it just brings into focus the fact that we have so much land flying about and i'm not talking about you know massive bits of land uh, isolated bits of land um it, it goes for that but it also goes for the wee bits of land too uh, uh, well, you, only, you, only just, you only just have to walk around a city and you see it don't you yeah that's right yeah. exactly yeah. Uh, there's one example i show in my um in the presentations that i've, I've, I've made and it's, it's a piece of Easter House, and it's 180, 180 hectares, I think it is, um, in Easter House. That's been, and basically, the, the, the houses were demolished, I think, in the 1980s. Mm. And the land is just sat there. Uh, it's been grassed over, but the, the lights, the street lights are still there, and the pavements <laughs> and the roads. It's just been sitting there doing nothing. Yeah, I don't even yeah. think they used for allotments or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. And just before. Just before Labour lost control of the city council, there was an announcement that they were going to develop this over the next 20 years. And I thought, you know, what would have been the, the, the ag for on that piece of ground, you know, if it had actually been mm. uh, been used or if mm. the council had been forced to pay that because, yeah. you know, they weren't stewarding yeah. the land properly. Yeah, and indeed, it, it, indeed. It, it was millions of pounds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, if it's really, I'll just say to people listening, it's really worthwhile going on to... Um, Graham's uh, website and having a look because you you work out examples for in different sorts of situations. Like you've got an example of a a sort of normal you know semi detached three bedroom house with a garden, which is yeah. what I'm it's what I'm sitting in at the moment, and uh, and uh-huh. and you know you can and I look at it and I think well wow, so I'd be paying we'd be paying nearly four thousand pounds and initially that goes oh god that's a lot more than we pay in council tax but then we wouldn't be paying council tax we wouldn't be paying income what income tax we do and and mm-hmm. other taxes so you end up actually be having more d- disposable income which apart from else, Graham, apart from the mm-hmm. kind of stewardship of the land which is really important but Apart from that, if people have more disposable income, that can go into the economy and actually help, um, you know, help uh, help yes. it keep going. The other thing I noticed was that you you'd worked out one for um for fuck I maybe just got it here. Oh yeah, it's a calculation for a forty-five acre estate with several houses and a castle, <laughs> and that would produce an annual revenue of over eight million quid. So. That's actually, I looked it up, that's actually about the size of Balmoral Estate. Although Balmoral, well, it's got the castle. Apparently, Balmoral's got 150 properties on it, like houses and other, probably mm-hmm. other rather nice houses. 
So the Queen mm-hmm. would be paying at least eight million quid. I mean, I don't know what she pays at the moment, but probably nothing like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh no, I'm pretty sure that she she doesn't pay anything like that. But you know that that's what it is. You know, um, it, it comes to that sort of figure. Um, and uh, having said that, the benefit for people who are are, are wealthy and have got a lot of assets, uh, and because you're treating everyone the same with the same type of land type. So regardless, if you own a big estate, or let's say you own a, a you know a wee cottage on in a rural area you're charged at the same rate per square metre. So you're actually not being yeah. treated in any different yeah. way. It's yeah. just the amount you it's own. the amount you own. Yeah. You pay. Yeah. That's right. If you own more, that's, that's what you pay. And um, I, don't, I don't go into this idea of, you know, whether it should be, you know, we should restrict foreign ownership of property in Scotland. That's an argument which I think we have got to have in this country. Um, but I don't go into that because that's not what this book is about. What the book is about is basically just showing, you know, yeah. What, what, yeah. what what you would pay if you own something, regardless yeah, exactly. of whether you're Danish or Scottish yeah. or English or Welsh or whatever. You know, that's what it is. There are certain countries like Denmark, for example, that you've got to be resident in the country for a number of years before you can own any property yeah. at all. Yeah. Whereas, you know, we welcome we welcome people from whether it's Denmark or, um, you know, Saudi Arabia or, or anywhere else for that matter. We have a very much an open door policy, we provided do. that the money is supposed to be clean. But that's another story, whether the money is clean or not. Some of our big estates are owned by Danish oh, yeah. people and um, yeah. Saudi Arabians, aren't they? You know, they are owned by... Yeah foreign plutocrats as it were that's right well you've got mr anders um polson polson who's scotland's largest landowner now and i know that uh, you know from what i've been told about the gentleman i've read about the gentleman is very much into sort of rewilding scotland and, and yeah. i'm not judgmental in that at all but for example i've calculated what he from what he owns he would probably have to pay about 45 million pounds a year <laughs> Like or something like that, but but basically that's a drop in the bucket to that guy. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, a, yeah. he's, a, he's a billionaire. Now he might, I don't know what you know for other taxes etc. He pays, but basically on his land holdings in Scotland, I don't think he pays any tax. He's got to make a return to the Danish Treasury for what he owns. For the, the other properties he's got that he, he rents out etc. Um, on his estates, yeah, he will pay corporation tax or whatever it is uh, for these things but that will be really quite modest in comparison to the land mm. which which you know mm. which he owns but you know that's 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 it so regardless whether it's it's mr anders polson who seems to be somebody that cares very much about climate or somebody else that we might consider as more exploitative i don't make a judgment on that at all you know that's for others to make a judgment on i'm just saying that's what the cost would be now sure. it would be up to sure. policy makers and the politicians to decide whether they wanted to make some type of land holding or part of it exempt or at a lower rate. Yeah, like schools, like things like schools or universities, um, you know, sports sports grounds, presumably things like that. That's right. Well, I would say we've got to be very careful here because it's been my experience over my life that the public sector aren't the best stewards of what they've got. Yeah. And you'll be able to think yourself of places where you live, where maybe schools have been closed and they've just sat in them and they've not maintained the buildings, they've not done anything with them. And you've got to also weigh up, uh, let's say a school. Okay, um, 
a school employs people, they pay national insurance contributions. But if you actually compare what the national insurance contributions are that they pay, it's very similar to what the, the AGFA would be in the school in a year. So right. they're, they're probably not going to lose anything out. It's six or one, half a dozen half of the other. Half a dozen other. of the other, yeah, yeah. I seem to remember being at a previous talk about land reform. I think it might have been Leslie Riddick or Andy Whiteman. And one of the things that was pointed out was that big companies can own land or buildings in a city like in Glasgow, for example, for investment purposes. But if they let them lie empty, they pay virtually nothing. Whereas if if there was annual ground rent, these companies would be having to contribute to the the common good, as it were. So do you think that would be a good, um, something progressive and more socially equitable? Well, yes, because that's all part of the stewardship yeah. You know, if they're sitting on something and it's not it's not doing something, then uh, you're not contributing. Yeah. You're basically not contributing to the state or the council or whatever it is. And what, one, one example was where my office was in Morrison Street in Glasgow. Immediately opposite that was the old original co-op buildings, Morrison Street and Paisley yeah. Road. And that, that, that lay empty for years. And it, it's actually owned by, or was owned by a, a, a Belfast registered company. And their idea was to convert it to a hotel, but that didn't happen. And then there was a fire. And all this time, they weren't contributing anything to the public purse, nothing at all. The uh, The road actually was probably closed for about three or four months. We had an awful time operating our business because of it. But then it was closed for three or four months. The police were involved, the fire brigade were involved, all these kind of things. And uh, it's just lying there as a big hole in the ground. Yeah. And that's not contributing anything, you know, yeah. to, to the public funds. So that's the sort of case yeah. where they would have been contributing and they wouldn't have sat on it lying empty and, and deteriorating. Uh, you know, if they were getting a hit of, you know, I don't know, 100, 120 grand yeah. a year, they yeah. haven't having to pay or something along those lines. I think that's the very case that was cited uh, as an example in that discussion, that that, that building and that yeah. fire. Yeah. I think because it was such an egregious example. So yeah. you're obviously a man, uh, Graham, who wants to make changes and make things better and improve things and um, is that one of the reasons why the other thing we wanted to talk to you about today is that you are standing for office in the SNP can maybe tell us about your but a wee bit for folks um, to let folk know about your background I know you've been a very active um, independence campaigner for many years and you've got long connections with the party so you're standing for national policy development convener and I wonder if you'd like to talk a little bit about that because clearly that's an area where you would like to have influence and make changes for the better. Yeah well I mean my my involvement in the the movement goes way back to this early 70s when I was in the Federation of Student Nationalists at Edinburgh University and then I got sort of involved again in the SNP probably late 80s early 90s and I've stood for parliament both parliaments and been uh, uh, underachieved in both if I can put it like that but over these years uh, through my my membership of my local branch and CA um, I've submitted umpteen resolutions you know to conference and some have been accepted some haven't about three years ago, I think I put in 23 and not one was accepted. But uh, anyway, you know, I've, I've, I've had relative success. Um, I introduced the hutting one. I introduced the one about compulsory refundable deposits. 
Uh, I've done ones on defence, I've spoken in ones on, on, on seconded ones on land reform and uh, etc. Um, and so I've and I've also spoken about, for example, employment because I've been an employer for most of my life. I mean, I've been self-employed most of my business life. And one of the things that we managed to achieve in my office was that we reduced the working week, standard working week, from 35 hours to 25 hours with no mm. loss of salary. Mm. And yeah. that, that changed the way people's lives were. You know, it was a, that, that was really about well-being. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah. It, wasn't, it yeah. wasn't entirely altruistic. Um, there were reasons why we did it, too, to benefit, benefit the office as well. But these are the sort of things that I've actually managed to do. And these are the things which I think, uh, as a progressive party and looking towards independence, the SNP should be looking at. And throughout my days in the SNP, I have, there hasn't been one branch meeting I've attended where I haven't come away with an idea uh, because the, the expertise uh, within the party of ordinary members is, is colossal, it's magnificent. And uh, I've met so many people who have taught me so many different things. Uh, and I just feel that, you know, we should garner that information, that expertise and involve, um, you know, involve our members in all these kind of things in developing our policy. Because I think if we have that discussion within the party so that the, the branches get the draft, say the policy development committee, get the ideas in and provided that they are, are basically an idea which can advance the cause of independence, then the, the, the policy development committee should embrace it and then seek to develop that along with the person who's had the idea or the branch that's had the idea, and then actually produce some sort of policy, which can then go back out to the branches, can go to the, the regional assemblies that are having these or the national assemblies, and then develop that policy. Yes, and I think yes. that's a far better way to develop policy rather than whether it's a government SPAD or just because somebody, you know, has a few extra yeah. initials at the end of their name that they think they're a so-called yeah. expert. Yeah, it's because... a sort of it's a grassroots up, isn't it? It's ideas coming up from the grassroots. And I mean, of course, you need experts as well at a certain point. You always need them, but that sounds uh, pretty attractive to me. It's really important that the policy is rooted in genuine conviction. And that it's not just like somebody coming up with a motion just because they think they'll be able to go up and speak to it, but maybe they don't have a real commitment, you know, a real genuine commitment. And sometimes you do get that. There's a slight gimmicky notion. Oh, that's right. You can. I mean, I, I just, I've discovered people, the, when I moved to our present house, moved to our present house 20 odd years ago, I joined the Helensburg branch and the branch meetings were absolutely fantastic. Because the people that were there, they had massive minds, huge minds. The intellect was incredible. You know, we had somebody who was a nuclear engineer. We had the daughter of one of the founding members of the SNP. She was our secretary, Alison Cowie. Um, we had John McNeil, who basically had had one of the first computer companies in the world. Mm. Uh, he and his wife Mary lived in, in Helens when we, we held the meetings in their house. I mean, there were various people at that. It was fantastic. It really was a, a fantastic experience. And so, you know, we also had Ronnie Morrison, who basically authored, co-authored a book on, oh, you know, yeah. on, current, on currency and, and banking. Yeah. Yeah. That's right, and banking. Um, so, you know, there were all these, all these people, and they were actually embedded at the heart of the SNP. 
And the love, the thing I loved about the SNP, apart from the fact that, you know, we were promoting independence, was that, you know, you could be what might be considered conventionally right or left or centre or in between or somebody like me that's neither one thing or the other. But, you know, there was a place for us and it wasn't based on on whether you were socialist or not, or capitalist, or whatever you want to call it, these were policies that we could all sort of embrace and get around and discuss and uh, even disagree with on occasions. But, you know, that was it. We formulated policy on that basis. And um, that that's basically what I think we should be doing. Yeah. Um, now, if, if I take, for example, the one about refundable deposits, the, the idea about that, and that was passed by a claim probably about 2010, something like that, and that was can, on the basis. Can I just say, just just to, just to, so that folk know what we're talking about, is that when um, I I rent a flat from you, and you say, okay, the rent such and such, and there's a deposit of three hundred quid, no. or is it, it's not that? No, no, it's, it's 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 basically about cartons and bottles and things like that. That you know, if oh, you buy, okay. right, 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 <laughs> right. <laughs> basically, basically, if you buy a carton or a bottle or or, or any container you have to pay a, a refundable deposit on it. And you get that money back, you know, if you basically put the, the carton or the bottle or whatever, you return it to yeah, any kind of yeah, reception yeah. station or something like that. And I was suggesting 50p for that. Now, it wasn't just because of the, the environmental issues regarding that, but it was also about litter. Litter, yeah. I mean, we're, we're, I mean, we know in Scotland, I mean, we're a bunch of crafty middens at times, the way that stuff's thrown out cars and all the rest of it and whatnot uh, and, and dumped. Uh, so this was an idea that, you know, if you give litter a value, then if you throw it out, somebody else will pick up if they're going to get the 50p. Yeah, I mean, it's as simple indeed. as that. Well, I mean, Graham, you're probably about the right age, certainly probably about similar to me, where I don't know if you can remember it, but as kids, we, you know, that was what you gather, you get the bottles from your granny right. or your mum and your dad or just the, just even, you know, on the, on the ground. You take them to the mm-hmm. local wee shop and you get you come out with you know thrums or whatever whatever it was at the time. I mean, it was it, it, all kids did it, and uh, right. that, that it would be great if that was back again. I mean, probably a bit more. Um, there'd probably be a machine now that you put the bottle in, and you know you get a, something back. Well, they have they have these machines in the continent. They do. I know. Them, I know. I've seen them. Yeah. And yeah, I've seen them. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's so easy. And it what it does is it forces the manufacturers and the retailers basically to to be much more inventive in the way that they actually present present items to buy and more considerate in that, in that. so you don't have single use things as such yes, but you have yes. capability of multi-use containers so anyway we got this passed i think it was 2010 it's just within the past year or so that you know the scottish parliament is is, is moving towards refundable deposits on, on, on bottles and one or two other other things so that's basically taken 10 years to produce that uh, now at the time when i had i challenged um i think it was the manager of coca-cola in scotland because he was speaking at a fringe meeting at the uh, the conference and he says oh no 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 we couldn't do that well now they're saying, yes, they can do it and they'll embrace it, but they've been oh. able to embrace it for years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that uh, I think it, it could have a colossal saving in money. The punters wouldn't lose out because, OK, they're paying the 50p up front, but they'll get it back. Yes. You know? But anyway, that was the idea. But that's taking 
10 years and we're only a wee bit of the way yeah, there. Yeah. Going back very briefly, because um, just looking at the time, we're going to have to finish in a wee mm. minute, but just very briefly to the, um, the land tax, uh, Graham, has that uh -huh. ever been put to SNP conference? Well, in 2017, Mary McCabe came up with an amendment to the uh, land reform and um, she asked me to second it. And I did. And so it was passed by a claim that, you know, land uh, land should be looked on as the source of public revenue. So that is that is party policy um, in the uh, in the SNP. But it's not really been developed at all since then. And despite the fact that, you know, I've made the presentation to some government ministers who have been actually very sympathetic towards it. So basically, we're, we're needing to push them on because I've been in touch with the civil servants. The civil servant says, oh, there's no review going on about public funding in Scotland, you know, public fund re revenue raising in Scotland. And then we've got the, the Land Commission basically won't discuss it either with me or I understand the Scottish Land, the Scottish Land Review Group. And uh, so, you know, we've, we've actually got to, to move this agenda yeah. forward yeah. because it, it provides a huge potential not just to improve the stewardship of our land, but actually to provide people with a decent universal citizen's income. I mean, I've worked in, the figures I've worked in, we could all have 10,000 quid a year yeah. on top of what we're earning just now. Yeah. That's a massive, that, that would change everybody's life. Yeah, a huge improvement. Yeah, well, yeah. it's a really interesting topic. We're looking forward to reading your book. Just remind mm -hmm. people that they can buy your book on your website, annualgroundrent.scot. So we'll say cheerio to you just now, Graham. Thank you very much. All the very best at the weekend. And we'll be watching carefully and we'll be reading your book when we get it. <laughs> Thank you very much, indeed. Thanks, Bye. 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 <laughs>